Uh, we're going to step our way uh, very uh, carefully through this book to make sure we can mine its riches. Uh, and so we had the whole chapter read this morning, even though we looked at the first half of it last week, just to uh, remind ourselves of uh, those introductory words. Um, but what we come to uh, today really is uh, the defining vision for the whole of the book. Uh, a portrait of Jesus Christ that should remain with us the whole time over the, the coming months as we uh, look at everything else in this book. Someone was to ask you, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? What does being a Christian look like? And you only had three words. How would you answer it? Maybe if you've done the authentic life, you'd say, oh well, faith, hope and love or maybe some other combination of words. Well, John uses three words here that might catch us a bit off guard because they may not be the three that immediately spring to mind when we think of our relationship with Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance, which in the Greek is is one word. Probably we don't immediately think or relate to these because of our situation here in the comfortable, uh, easy, democratic West. Tribulation seems far away from us, the other side of the world. Endurance feels easy when life is comfortable. And we don't really get what it's like to live in a monarchy under a king. But these three words sum up the reality, John says, of what it means to be in Jesus. And it's a description that actually applies just as much to us today as it did to the first Christians. To be a Christian is to know that Jesus is Lord, there is a kingdom, and the call to stand firm in faith in him, to endure, no matter what we face in life even if that's tribulation. So let's think about how these three things fit together, how all three are needed, and if we take away just one of them, we end up with an unbalanced, dysfunctional view of our faith and of life. If we take away the kingdom, we end up just like those in the world who don't know or acknowledge God. With the reality of hardship and suffering that no one can deny, but without the motivation to patiently endure. Not knowing that Jesus is actually Lord over all things and is with us. And there's no sense there of any purpose in enduring. Not knowing the goal of his reigning over us or the hope of the resurrection. There's a popular statement about hardships. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Which is a statement, firstly, is all about me and in the end it's pointless because no matter how strong I become in this life through hardship, it's all going to come to nothing when I die if there's no kingdom If we take away tribulation, 
we end up with a fake world, an unreality denying the truth that life will always involve suffering. Whether it's suffering because we're identified with Christ, persecution, or simply because we live in a cursed, fallen and often dangerous creation. This is the prosperity gospel which wants all of the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth to be brought forward into this life to say if you are a Christian with enough faith you'll always be happy, you'll always be healthy, you'll always be well off. But it ignores the fact that it's the Father's purpose to use suffering and hardship to shape us into the image of his Son. So without tribulation we would never become like Jesus. If we take away patience, patient endurance, well again we lose our sense of hope because we no longer see how the Father is using our suffering to shape our character and we end up with an activist or a combative faith where it's us in the kingdom versus them in the world who are responsible for all of the tribulation according to us. We'll feel the need then to take justice into our own hands, to fix the world, to fix the church, instead of simply entrusting ourselves to the faithful creator and getting on with the job of loving one another and our neighbour. So see how this is a beautiful picture of the reality of life in Jesus because it enables us to actually make sense of the reality of this life and to step forward every day in confident faith because we know that the risen Jesus himself patiently endured the tribulation of the cross in order to bring us into his kingdom. See, this is a picture of life in Jesus because it's a picture of the life he himself lived. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance is a description of Jesus, even before it's a description of our life. He received the kingdom on the basis of the patient endurance of the cross where he died on our behalf. So it becomes the description of us only when we've been united with him in his suffering, his death and his resurrection. Now John calls himself a partner, a brother and partner in these things and that's something we might easily miss or choose to ignore even. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Just as we are made together into a kingdom and priests to reign with Christ forever, so too we are called to suffer together and patiently endure together. The Christian life is never a solo journey in which I must struggle alone in my own personal, private battles. We have brothers and sisters and partners in Christ and just as we share a common hope, so too we share in one another's tribulations 
and are called to help one another patiently endure. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. It's not following a rule, it's not an obligation, it's expressing the reality of being in Jesus, Jesus in us, so that the life of Jesus overflows into the lives of one another. So whatever burdens you may be carrying, whatever tribulations you're facing, whatever tests of patience and faith, the safest place to bring it all and unload is the body of Christ. We mustn't come along on Sunday or Friday or whatever day we gather with a facade that says all is okay with me when the reality is something quite different. If there's any place we are to be welcomed along with all of our faults and our failings and our battles, it should be the family of God. Now, this is all preliminary really to the vision that John sees here in chapter 1, but it helps us to see that this revelation we'll be exploring, no matter how strange and marvellous and mysterious, is firmly grounded in the reality of Christ's presence and walking with us, his beloved people. So let's look at the first part of this first vision. Now, Revelation is composed of seven visions. Each of them give us a different perspective on the one reality of Jesus Christ as the true king and prophet and priest. Uh, and that's all there on that, uh, in that little introduction booklet, which I uh, forgot to print more copies, so I'll have more available next week. So the first vision in this book covers uh, the rest of chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 3 and it shows us what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church. The first thing to note is that he speaks to the church, to the churches. This revelation of himself isn't just for John, it's meant for the whole church. There they are there in uh, the west of what we now know as Turkey and uh, you can see off the bottom corner there is the island of Patmos where John uh, wrote this book. Why was it sent initially to these seven churches? We don't know for sure. We do know that uh, John was based in Ephesus so uh, and Ephesus was a bit of a a regional capital. Uh, So most likely he would have known personally those who were in these churches. But what we also will see that each individual letter to each church is also meant to be taken as what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So just as we can take the letters to all of the churches in the New Testament and apply it to ourselves, so too, here are seven more letters that we will look at and we'll be able to apply it to ourselves because it is for the whole church across all time and geography. John tells us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, the early Christian's name for the first day of the week, 
when they would gather, the day we call Sunday. He may have been the only Christian on the Isle of Patmos, we don't know. It was a a prison island where the Romans exiled people. But it seems that he dedicated this time, the Lord's Day, in solidarity with his brothers and sisters that he knew were gathering right across the empire. And this phrase, in the spirit, is a prophetic term. It's a term that comes out of the Old Testament prophets. It's the experience of the prophets as they heard the Lord speak to them. We see this in Ezekiel 2. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. That's Ezekiel speaking. Then he says in another passage, Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. So you see the similarities there in the the terminology. So these words, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, head up to us, what follows is the word of the Lord. It's a prophetic utterance. And so we must pay attention to it, just as John's attention was grabbed by this voice he heard from behind him. There's a pattern here that... uh, that um, is supposed to come up there on the screen, but in verse 12, it's a pattern that we'll see a few times in Revelation, in which John first hears words being spoken and then he looks to see what he's heard. But what he sees isn't necessarily what he or we may have been expecting. What he sees in order to understand what he sees, we need to go back to the book of Daniel and to look at two visions that Daniel had in chapter 7 and in 10. So Daniel chapter 7, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And he goes on from verse 13. It's not running there, Peter. I'll read and hopefully it will come up. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So John's words, one like a son of man, is supposed to take us back to Daniel 7, where, as you can see, the exact same phrase is used in verse 13. This term, son of man, 
literally means a human being, someone who is a son of Adam. Now, as we saw in that earlier passage from Ezekiel, God addressed Ezekiel as son of man to highlight his humanity in distinction to God. Prophet is just simply a human being without any special qualities or special powers to whom God speaks and calls him to bring his word to his people. Unlike the pagan prophets who claimed some special ability to see into the spiritual realm, biblical prophets were just regular human beings. Their hearing and their speaking was fully dependent on the spirit at work in them and through them. So what's surprising about Daniel's vision here is that a son of man is brought into the very presence, the throne room of the Ancient of Days. He has a boldness to approach the throne and the Ancient of Days, God himself, not only receives him but gives him this eternal kingdom and a a status among the nations such that all people serve him. Then, another vision in Daniel chapter 10. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So Daniel sees this son of man again. And what's terrifying to him is that this time it's not from a distance, it's close up, close enough for this son of man to touch him. And his response to the glory of this Son of Man is to lose all strength, to fall down, to pass out. But then, what a beautiful scene follows. 
the glorious one who has received all authority from God, comes, lays his hand on him, restores his strength and calls him a man greatly loved. It's not what you would expect from a great, powerful king before whose feet you've fallen. But it's not any king, it's Jesus coming to give Daniel insight into the mysteries of the kingdom that are to be revealed in the future. And note what he says in verse 14. Ah, This hasn't come up either, that's fine. I come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the last days. Where is it? For the vision is for days yet to come. We'll come back to those words in a moment. Now I hope you recognised the many parallels between Daniel's vision and what John sees here in Revelation 1, 12 to 18. John's vision continues and combines elements of both of Daniel's visions of this Son of Man. Make sure I get the right spot. His clothes, first of all. Uh, I think I've I've put the wrong reference in there. Uh, His clothes, a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. They are priestly garments, which is confirmed by the fact that he's walking among the seven lampstands. This is the seven-branched lamp that stood in the temple before the curtain and the seven flames on this seven-branch lampstand signified the presence of the Lord in the temple. So a duty of the priest was to maintain the lamp, trimming the wicks, topping up the oil to ensure that these flames never went out. So this Son of Man is not only king over all, but he's the high priest ensuring that the presence of God remains with his people. Now we were told in verse 20 that these seven lamps represent the churches. God's covenant people are the temple, the new temple that's being built out of living stones. God's dwelling place is now with us, in us, among us. Under the old covenant, people would go to Jerusalem to the building to encounter the presence of the true and living God. Now, under the new covenant in Jesus, people encounter God as they come into the community of his people, the church, wherever and whenever they gather. We don't go to a temple to worship. We are the temple in which Jesus, as high priest, leads the worship. The seven stars in his hand, 
see if we can find the spot here. Verse 16. We're told are also related to the churches. They're the angels of the churches. Now, I don't think we can be dogmatic about whether the angels here are spiritual beings or human beings. My leaning is towards seeing them as the human uh, leaders or messengers who were leaders of these local churches, elders or pastors, because we'll see at the beginning of each letter to write to the angel of the church as if they're somehow responsible to ensure that this message is communicated faithfully to the church. And the fact that Jesus holds these seven stars in his right hand tells us that they act and speak with Jesus' authority, but they're also protected by him, giving us confidence that this revelation, this message will be secure because Jesus protects his own messengers. His feet, hopefully we're back on track with what's up on the screen now, his feet of burnished bronze, refined in the, in the fire, speak of strength and power, like a, a warrior wearing armour. The brightness of his face, uh, like the sun in full strength. His imagery taken from the Old Testament descriptions of people who were victorious in battle over God, God's enemies. So not only is he king and priest, but he's also the conqueror, standing victorious over all of the powers of darkness, over sin and death and the devil. When he appeared to Daniel, if you remember, it was in the context of a battle that was ongoing, still being fought with the prince of Persia. Here he appears as one who's triumphant, Why? Because the battle's completed. He's slain the enemy and he has the keys to the enemy's palace, to death and Hades. That means he's able to free all who are prisoners. His resurrection has unlocked the prison doors and anyone who's captive to the fearful enslavement of death may look to him and come out into freedom and life. His eyes of fire and the sword coming out of his mouth. Yep, it's there. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Speak of his authority to judge. Eyes that see and reveal all and words that speak true and right and just judgments. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So is the king. He's the high priest, he's the conquering warrior and he's the judge of the whole earth. And see that this vision also incorporates, still not working there, elements of what Daniel saw 
of the Ancient of Days on the throne in the description of his hair being white as wool. So this Son of Man, while being fully human, is also divine. He is the Son who comes as the perfect image of his Father. So straight away we see Jesus being true to the name of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the first thing that we see. And as we'll discover in the next seven weeks, this description of him flows into how the church is to see and understand herself and her mission. This opening vision lays the foundation for the next two chapters, but actually, as I said, for the whole book. All things are in light of the person of Jesus, the one who reveals and the one who is revealed. We saw also in verse 17 the same beautiful action that Daniel experienced. When John falls down, overcome out of fear at this glorious vision, Jesus comes to him and lays his hand on him with these words, Fear not. For John, this experience would have reminded him, would have taken him back to the day that he was on the mountaintop with Peter and James and they saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This glorious Son of God is also John's friend, Jesus, with whom he lived in the flesh for three years. Many times he would have experienced the touch of Jesus' hand and he heard again and again the most common phrase we see Jesus speaking in the Gospels, fear not. John and we need to make this connection between this glorious vision of the Son of Man and the reality that this is Jesus of Nazareth who lived and walked in our flesh. See the reason he gives for not fearing? Because of who he is. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus does something remarkable here. He takes the phrase we saw earlier in verses 4 and 8 where God says, I am the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come and he reframes it around the reality that this God, the great I Am, has come embodied in the flesh. So Jesus in the present is the living one, the risen Christ who reigns in life and who gives life to all who come to him. We look back to the past and we see that he is the one 
who died for us and our sins. But that's in the past, in the sense that it's finished, it's done. His action in the past has laid the foundation then for a future full of hope where we will know him forever as the one who is alive forevermore. Finally, verse 19 gives us what we could call the interpretive key for this book. Now, some have taken this uh, simply to be a chronology. So, the things that you have seen, the past, those that are the present and those that are to take place after this, the future. But it's a bit of a convoluted way if that's actually just what it's saying. I think there is that sense there, but there's actually more to it. In fact, he's saying something very significant about what John is about to see and experience. So, write the things that you have seen. is actually a repeat of the commandment in verse 11 to write down the visions as he sees them. Write them down. Those that are, is that part of how we interpret this book, as we saw last week, in which the visions refer to spiritual and physical realities in this world? And then those that are to take place after this isn't just referring to a future time, but it's a reference back to what we heard him say to Daniel at the end of that vision in Daniel 10. He said that he came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. It's really a a quote or a paraphrase just of this verse. Daniel saw many things that he was told were for a time in his future, a time known as the latter days or the last days. Much of what he saw was a mystery that he himself couldn't understand. not sure how that ended up there. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he saw things that he just couldn't understand and he was told that he and those in his days weren't supposed to understand it because it was something that is only to be revealed at a later time. So he was told, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then later in that chapter, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So many people will try to work out what these visions were all about that Daniel had but they won't be able to because they're things that can't be worked out by human reason or cleverness. They can only be known as God 
reveals them to us. Well, the last days, spoken of in Daniel, have arrived in Jesus. Um, he was born when the time had fully come, says Galatians 4.4. And when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it fulfilled the promise of Joel 2 of what the Lord would do in the last days, there in verse 17. So we are living in the last days and we have ever since Jesus came. The last days are the time between Jesus' first and second coming. That's why John's vision so closely resembles Daniel's visions. John is reliving, so to speak, Daniel's experience, but with one huge difference. What was sealed up for Daniel is being unsealed for John and for us. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That which the Jews for centuries longed to know, longed to see opened up in their day, has been made known and opened up in our day. The day that the New Testament calls today, the day of Jesus Christ. So to see that this is not saying that all that follows in this book of Revelation is in some distant future, that was the case for Daniel, but it's not the case for us. The kingdom of God has come. The last days are upon us. The Son of Man is walking amongst the lampstands of his church and is with us, just as he promised What we'll see as we look at the seven churches is that for each church Jesus takes one aspect of this vision of himself and he applies it directly to that church showing us that the reality of who he is as king, as high priest, as conquering warrior, as judge, as the son of God shapes who we are and how we live as his people today. So as I said, This image of Jesus we've seen this morning, let's keep it in our minds as we hear over the next seven weeks what he is saying through the Holy Spirit to his church. Let's pray.